we're continuing in the series, Everyday Disciple, being like Jesus in everyday life. And I'm super excited to be able to speak on that this morning. Uh, discipleship is, is, should be everyone's bread and butter. It should be what we're about. It is the foundation of our faith, discipleship, and that statement, being like Jesus in everyday life. And so as we get started this morning, I just want to pray, and then we will get right into it. Uh, Father God, we just ask for more of your presence in this place. God, I'm thankful for every individual that is here this morning. I'm thankful for everyone that is watching online. God, they are here on purpose this morning. And so I ask that you continue to be a part of our lives and that uh, the words that you have to say, God, that they resonate in this room. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So as we start this morning, I, I want to share some, some bad news uh, with you, um, something that kind of terrifies me a little bit, and it's that I believe that there is a discipleship crisis in our church today. I think that there is a discipleship crisis in our church. And I, I say church, I say like capital C church, like church as a whole, there is a crisis going on. Uh, crisis is defined as a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. I think that we, as a, as a church as a whole, have, have dropped the ball on discipleship, discipling uh, people. As a, as a whole. And as, I want to take a look here at Barna Group. For those of you who don't know, Barna Group, they, they're a Christian polling institute. They do studies on churches, on the health of churches, on pastors, on congregation members, on disciples, and all that kind of stuff. And they also do um, uh, research on generations. So currently, they do a study. They are wanting to study. So if we go to the slide here, we see that there is um, a declining percentage of a biblical worldview with each passing generation. And so currently in Gen Z, they describe Gen Z um, as people born from 1999 to 2015. Um, and we see that there is a 4% biblical worldview in this generation right here. 4%. That is not good. Um, it scares me a little bit. But, and I would definitely describe this as a crisis. This is a time of difficulty, of trouble. Um, but I do want to share some good news with you. But before I do that, I want to break down what this 4% actually means. And so as of 2019 it is estimated that there are 2.47 billion people in the Gen Z generation. That's roughly 32% of our world population. And out of that 4% of the 2.47 billion, that roughly is about 98 million people. Now, that seems like a lot. I mean, I've never seen 98 million people um, in one spot. I mean, I'm sure if you did, it'd be insane. But 98 million people in context of our 8 billion people that live on planet Earth that is not a lot of people at all. That's nothing. That is nothing. And I, I say this jokingly, that the whole reason that I became a youth pastor is so I wouldn't have to do math, but here I am doing math, um, but I just Googled it and asked Siri and all that kind of stuff. But with that being said, I believe that it, unless something drastic happens, that percentage for the next generation that is already here, they're already being born, um, that percentage is going to shrink to 3 or 2%. We just follow the trends and follow the statistics. And that may be a, discour a discouragement to some, and I don't want that to be. I want us to be excited for what we can do about it. But before we do that, I want to read um, something that, if you've been in church for any number of time, you may know this is the Great Commission. It's one of the last things that Jesus says on planet Earth. Uh, so Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. That's the imperative. That's the mission that we have today, is to go and make disciples. And that commission to go has withstood the test of time. 
It is the same today as it was thousands of years ago, that commission to go and to make disciples. The only problem, though, even though that mission hasn't changed, I believe it's, some of us haven't accepted that mission to go and make disciples, kind of like the mission impossible, like this mission if you choose to accept it kind of deal. But the thing is, I think that Christians, we, we, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus and claim to be that, I believe there are two types. I believe there are followers of Jesus and there are disciples of Jesus. And I believe that there is a, after doing study, there's a big difference between the two, between a follower and a disciple of Jesus. And so I actually have the definition from Webster Dictionary. A follower is defined as a person who is tracking a particular person, group, or organization. That's a follower. A disciple is defined as a student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. I think if you look at those two definitions, that's a very, very big difference in terms of the wording here, because Jesus had both. He had his followers and his disciples. There were people that were fascinated with what he did, that followed him along and, and wanted to see him perform miracles and wanted to hear him teach, thought he was a great teacher. Um, some people followed him because they didn't like him at all and wanted to catch him in all sorts of lies or, or heresy, whatever you want to call it. But they listened to his sermons, thought he was a great teacher. But then there were the disciples, the people that were right in step with Jesus every step of the way. They dropped everything when Jesus said to come, with me, come follow me. They dropped everything. They dropped their livelihood, they left their families, their comfortability, and said yes to Jesus and followed him. They were students, lifelong learners, sitting at his feet every day, listening to what he had to say. These people were performed miracles of their own, they started churches, they were thrown in jail, and they were killed for being like Jesus. And I feel like that's where the difference lies. And as we I want to break this down even more for you. This is a metaphor that I've used before. I, I just call it like the, the dresser metaphor. So I want you to picture your life as a dresser. So in your dresser, say this is your life. You've got Jesus, you've got work, and you've got school. You can replace them with whatever, whatever it is that you want. Um, I just did school and work because that kind of applies to everybody. Everybody works. People go to school. Um, and, and, and on the service, this, this could look great. You see, you've got your Jesus at the top even. Um, but the, the problem that with this logic is that what you do is you open up your drawer, you take out what you need, and you close it, and you forget about it. You go to church once a week. You go to church on Sunday, or you come to Wednesday night, or, or things like that, and you only access Jesus when you're here in this building or wherever it is that you attend church or grow in your faith. It's only then. The other issue is that, you see, Jesus is compartmentalized. He's only here. He's not, in, the, in this example, he's, only, he's not in your work. He's not in your school. And the problem is that Jesus wants to be more than that. He doesn't want to just be a part of your life. And if we were to look at our life as a drawer, he doesn't want to be just a, a drawer in your dresser. He wants to be the whole thing. He wants to be a part of our entire lives. He wants to be a part of our work, a part of our school, a part of our friendships, our family, our hobbies. This is what a disciple looks like, where Jesus is in everything, not just a part. And that's what a disciple is, someone where Jesus is a part of everything that they do. Everything that they do. Because a disciple is a follower of Jesus who follows him, but with the intent of becoming more like him. Not just following him for the cool things he does, because they want to see him perform miracles, or they, wanna, they want some fish and bread, or they, want, or they want their friend to be healed, but they want to strive to be more like him. That's the difference. And as we look at the Great Commission, it says to go and make disciples, not followers, disciples of Jesus. So my question for you is, are you comfortable with just admiring Jesus for the things he does? 
follow him around, track his progress as he goes from town to town, or if you're back in the day and just follow the cool things that he does? Or are you wanting to drop everything and follow him? Take up your cross every day and follow him. Because Jesus asked that of everybody, but there was only 12 that said yes to do that. I don't know about you, but I want to be one of the 12. I don't want to be one of the 5,000 that just sits there and just partakes of the goodness of him. I want to be, strive to be just like him and have Jesus a part of my life, all-encompassing. A great example of discipleship as we break down, and then we kind of define what a disciple is, discipleship itself, how does it happen? I think the best example that we have is Paul. Um, Paul, uh, we're going to take a look here in Acts 15. Um, we're looking at Paul decided to bring a young man named Timothy along on his second missionary journey that we have here. And we're just going to read Acts uh, 16, 1 through 5. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish, Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. So they went from town to town instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. This is an example of someone discipling, taking someone along on their journey with them. This is what Paul did. And their relationship, I mean, if you've read in the New Testament any number of times, you've read the epistles, you see that Paul speaks very highly of Timothy. Uh, some, some, he calls him um, a son of the faith. He calls him a brother. In Philippians, when Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, he says that, quote, I have no one like him. He's referring to Timothy. Timothy was a young disciple who received a life-changing investment from Paul. The older man saw potential in Timothy and decided it was worth the time and effort to mentor him, to walk alongside him. And Paul prayed for Timothy day and night. And we see the footprints of Paul's discipleship on Timothy in the writing of Scripture in the New Testament uh, Paul is written down as a co-author of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, as well as writing his own in 1 and 2 Timothy. So we, we get the benefit of Paul's investment in Timothy because we now get to be mentored when we read the scriptures. We get to be mentored by Paul and Timothy as we read these scriptures because Paul decided to invest in a young man that we see this. And as we look back on this verse, because um, Paul decided to take a young man under his wing, we see that the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. There is a tangible thing that we can point to and say, because of discipleship, this happened. Churches grew and their faith was strengthened every day. So, as we continue on here, I want to read a quote to you from a great actor. His name is Denzel Washington on the topic of mentorship and discipleship. I always try to in incorporate movies. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, movie goer. I watch movies all the time. I love actors and the, the incredible work that they do. So I want to read a quote to you from Denzel Washington on this topic of discipleship and mentorship. He says, show me a successful individual and I'll show you some who had real positive influence in his or her life. I don't care what you do for a living. If you do it well, I'm sure there is someone cheering you on or showing the way. A mentor. Because of the investment that Paul made in the young person, the message of Jesus spread throughout the country and the churches were strengthened. As we continue on and we look, I want to continue to look at more studies that Barna does. Again, they're a phenomenal uh, research group. I encourage you to look at their statistics on everything. They got answers for every question, trends and culture and all those kinds of things. I want to look at another study here uh, that Barna did on people ages 18 to 29 who grew up in the church. 
This is a fascinating study. They wanted to ask the question, what creates disciples? So we see here that they are broken up into four different categories. Uh, we have prodigals slash ex-Christians, nomads slash unchurched, habitual churchgoers, and resilient disciples. So what they did is they brought them uh, statements and then broke them up into categories of how they would define themselves and if they agreed with this statement or not, what percentage did. And so there's two lines that I want to look at specifically uh, here. The, the first one I want to look at is the second line, and it says, there is someone in my life that helps me grow spiritually. 85% of what they consider resilient disciples agree with that statement. And they, de- they, they define resilient disciples as people who are daily in Scripture, who are discipling others, who are being discipled, that attend church, they serve, they go, they preach the good news. That's what they consider to be resilient disciples. 85%. Now, if I was in school, I would be happy to take an 85% because that didn't happen very often for me. I would love an 85%. That, that's, that's huge. And if you look in the contrast of all of the other ones, we have prodigals, ex-Christians, only 23% of them agreed with that statement. That's a huge gap that we see here. The second statement I want to I look at is the fourth line, and it says, growing up, I had close personal friends who were adults in my church, parish, or faith community. 77% of disciples agreed with that statement. Also, a huge margin from the 27%. Huge. That is huge, and it shows the importance of people investing in other people. That's what it shows, and that's how resilient disciples, how discipleship happens. And so, as we look at this, um, I want to I make this point. If you're someone who is older, um, I cannot express to you the value of you going to a young person and saying, hey, I see something in you. God is doing something good in your life. Can I sit with you and pour into your life? That is pure gold. I'm only here today because people did that with me. That's why I'm here. And that is why I'm sure Pastor Dan is here. That's why Gail is here is because people poured into their life. And in, in, in a culture, in a society in an, that is, has a generation of, of students that are full of depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, sexual identity issues, all of these are symptoms to a lack of discipleship. That, that's it. If we want to know the answer, that's why. It's because we, we haven't passed on the baton to each generation and it's fallen off. And that's why we see these issues come up in our culture today. That's why. Discipleship isn't happening. I also wanted to point out, uh, there, there's uh, the third statement on here. Um, I don't know if you can read it, but it says, um, I am connected uh, to a community of Christians, even for habitual churchgoers. And they describe these people as people who attend two to three times a week. A month, not a week. Two to three times a month. Only 33% of them agreed with that statement. That opened my eyes that we as a church have to be better at welcoming even the people who we see on a consistent basis every month. As, as Pastor Dan says, that they need to feel like they can belong before they believe. That's what we have to be about. Because only 33% of people who attend on a consistent basis feel connected here, if you want to implement that here. That just opened my eyes. So, as we continue on here, as we look at this chart, and we look at the investment that people have made in their life, and we see that when people invest, disciples are created. And as we look at the relationship between Paul and Timothy, the dynamic that they have, the lesson that we get out of this and Paul and Timothy is that disciples are built through meaningful relationships. That's how they're built, is through meaningful relationships. I put the word meaningful in there 
because they can't just be, it's not, it's not disciples are built through relationships. They have to be meaningful relationships. They have to be intentional relationships. They need to be relationships that are biblically centered, that are focused on Scripture. They need to be relationships that hold each other accountable. As we look at Paul and Timothy, Paul always is urging Timothy to be devoted and diligent to the way he lived his life, telling him uh, to, quote, watch your life and doctrine closely. It's in 1 Timothy 4.16. As Christ followers, it's not enough for us to just know God's Word. If you know where every single reference is, great, but the step that we have to take is implementing that into our life and obeying that. I made this comparison yesterday. I, I feel like it's so much worse if, if a kid knows the rules and then intentionally breaks them than a kid who doesn't know anything and then breaks them. We know better. We know what Scripture says. We have to be implementing it into our life daily and we have to be holding our, our, our friends, our, our, the people that we interact with, accountable to that as well. So what do your relationships look like? Are they biblically centered? Do you hold each other accountable? We need to be examining these relationships. Even as I was writing this, I was examining the relationships that I haven't done a great job of holding them accountable. And I'm sure each and every one of us, there may be a person or two that, you know, maybe, maybe they're in this room that you haven't been as biblically focused. You know that they're walking through something they shouldn't be. We have to be willing to embrace the uncomfortable, have the conversations to be able to stand on truth, as Dan said earlier, standing on the Word of God. We have to be willing to stand on that with truth. We also have to make sure that there isn't just truth, but there's a lot of love in that too. We have to be willing to embrace those conversations and those relationships and get them realigned that they are biblically centered and that you hold each other accountable much like Paul and Timothy did. We can't afford it to be anything but intentional. We can't afford it. We've seen what, what's happened when we haven't. We've seen those statistics. I showed them to you. When we're not intentional in our relationships with one another, this is what happens. Our culture is the result of Christian comfortability. So we have to be better. We have to be willing to embrace the call of the Great Commission in every moment. And that means having those meaningful, intentional relationships. They all have to be. We have to say yes to Jesus' go, to go and make disciples. We have to say yes. So what do we do as we, as we look at these statistics and it may seem dark and gloomy, um, I want to encourage you that it's not because God's word is going to prevail. It always will, no matter what. It is to the test of, of, of time, of kingdoms, of government, and it is still here thousands of years ago. We are still good, but that doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. We have to be proactive in our relationships. And so as we look deeper at this, we have to go away with our old version of discipleship. We have to reset it to what Jesus did as we look at Scripture, the time he spent with his disciples, what he did. So we look at this slide here. We often think that we have to get 300 people at our church. We have to get 25 people in our small group. We've got to get 40 in our, in our youth group before we start discipling them. They've got to connect. They've got to attend. Uh, they've got to serve. And they've got to make sure that we check all their boxes and then we, they can go and make, make more disciples. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus had his 12, but he had his three that he spent such close, intimate, intentional time with. Peter, James, and John. And those three ended up doing incredible, incredible things. They went on to heal, perform miracles, and they also started the greatest movement 
in human history. The church. The church is the greatest movement we've ever seen in history. Over the last two years, we've seen movements, we've seen causes, we've seen all sorts of of, uh, things that people are wanting to get behind. Um, But even now, as we look at it two years later, I I feel like there's been a, a decline in terms of the engagement of those things. I'm not seeing that in the church. There's probably about 100 people here. And there will be next week, and there will be 10 years from now. The church is here to stay. It has withstood the test of time. And it is because Jesus spent close, intentional time with his disciples. And those disciples multiplied. The 12 turned into 70, and I think it's it's 500. And then that's how we cover the earth. So being intentional with our relationships, spending intimate time with them. As we get towards the end of this message here, I want to say that we are all being discipled by something. Something is discipling all of us. We are all students of something. We are learning from someone. But we decide who that is, what that is. As we look at culture today, we are discipled by our politics Agendas from others, celebrities, influencers on the internet, our neighbors. We all are being discipled by something. We're a student of someone. Famous biblical uh, scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says, where no attention is given to teaching and constant lifelong Christian learning, we quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with our minds shaped by whatever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influencer memory. Lifelong. If it's not lifelong, if we're not constantly, constantly in this position of learning and growing and being discipled, we'll be surprised how quickly we just go to the next thing, the next agenda, and that's what we focus on our minds will quickly revert to whatever social pressure. I'm seeing that a lot in our students today. I see them every week. That is what they are being discipled by. Agendas, politics. And I even see older people being discipled by those same things because they're not in a position of lifelong Christian learning. We don't ever make it. Never. The minute that we think we do, I pray that there is an ego check in our lives. We must be proactive on our discipleship method because our culture is very good at discipling. We've seen it. But we have to be better. We will be better because the Bible doesn't change. The Bible doesn't change. Cultures change. Agendas change. But our framework has never changed. The Bible is the same as it is today as it will be 300 years from now. And that should be an encouragement, knowing that what we believe in, it's going to be here. Who knows what our culture is going to look like tomorrow? I don't know. All I know is it's going to be different, because it always is. But we have to step into those situations. And I say this with our youth students often. It's our, kind of our, our motto here, and a lot of them have embraced it. I need to put it on a t-shirt and patent it or something. But it's a go and be a generation changer. Not a game changer. Be a generation changer because we can't afford to lose the next one. We can't afford to. We can't afford to waste time without, with 
meaningless relationships. We have to embrace people. People are difficult. I'm difficult. I'm stubborn. I think my mother is here in this place and she would agree with that. We have to be proactive. You are all, we are all being discipled. And I'm grateful for the, the people in my life that are discipling me, Pastor Dan and Gretchen, and I have, I have many others that I meet with on a consistent basis because it has to be consistent because if it's not constant, our minds will quickly revert to whatever social press, pressures are most persuasive. We have to be on top of it. So as we wrap up here, and we'll, we'll sing a song here, I, I have two people that I think each of us need in our life. You may understand, maybe you can catch along with where I'm going with this. The first person that we need in our life is a Paul. We need someone you have, we have given permission to know us inside and out, speak into our life on a daily basis, that we go to them, seek correction, seek wisdom, discernment, much like Timothy did. And then, guess what? We also need a Timothy. We need someone. We need to give what we've received. We have to leave that legacy. I'm just thinking there's probably about 100 people in this room. There may be more online. I'm just envisioning if each one of us went and got a Timothy, the impact that that would make on Albany just with 100 people, double to 200 people who are disciples, who are moving closer and pursuing Jesus with all that they have, letting go of everything else, this community would be changed. We've seen what it does when, when people do that. Continents are changed. Cultures are changed. Schools are changed. Workplaces are changed. And so I ask you today these two questions. Who is your Paul? And who is your Timothy? Doesn't matter your age. Doesn't matter how much wisdom you may have. Again, there's always more. We don't ever get there. So please, I am asking you, as someone who is going to see the next generation and see the next one, I am asking, who can you take under your wing? Who can you invest in? I'm asking all of you to be generation changers in this place. Whatever they're called, I don't really care because they're already here and they are hungry. I guarantee you, we've seen it over the last two years. They're hungry to get behind something. You just got to give them guidance. We have to be willing to embrace the one. That's all I ask. Who's your one? Who's your Timothy? breaks my heart to see what's happened. It really has. But we got this. We got this. We can't lose this next one. We won't. But that means every single person in this room has to embrace that. We have to have a Timothy. We have to be mentored ourselves. We have to be students. So maybe your, your Paul is in this room. Maybe your Timothy is in this room. But I ask as we sing this song, I ask, you sit, stand, walk, whatever, that God reveals those people in your life.
because they're already here. They're in your life somewhere. Can't afford to lose the next one. Who is your Paul? Who's your Timothy? Timothy?